The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. The pleasure that comes from Dharma practice. And one of the principles that, uh, that I'm going to offer is the principle that sometimes uh, what is unpleasant can be overcome by what is pleasant. Sometimes pain can be overcome by pleasure or dealt with through pleasure. But not just any pleasantness or any pleasure, but what can be called dharmic pleasure. So what is that? There's a story uh, in the suttas, teachings of the Buddha, about a, I, it's possible it's the, buzz, the, the uh, Buddha's cousin, who is a lay person who comes to the Buddha and he says, uh, I have this preoccupation that is getting in my way. And uh, I can't really make progress in the Dharma or something because it's preoccupation. And, uh, and the preoccupation is the, uh, overly attached to sensual pleasure. It's a sense of, sense of sensual pleasure is an obstacle because I'm constantly thinking about it or imagining it or wanting it or something concerned with it. And the Buddha says that's the way it is. That if you're, uh, if you're preoccupied and caught up in sensual pleasure, it's really hard to make progress on the Dharma path. And back in ancient India, in Buddha's time, there was uh, uh, other religious uh, traditions that saw this as well, that, uh, that sensual pleasures of all kinds were an obstacle to some kind of spiritual progress. And they advocated asceticism, sometimes a radical denial of all pleasure and all that, sometimes actually an intentional taking on a pain there are some people who believe that you can only overcome pain with pain. So, you know, get into it. And, uh, and uh, so he says, yeah, that's... Uh, but they, So the Buddha agreed with the man, yeah, there can be an obstacle in, in preoccupation with sensual pleasure. And then remarkably, the Buddha said that before I was enlightened, I also was preoccupied with sensual pleasures in a way that interfered with my practice, interfered with things. So he knew intimately for himself how this can work. And then he says, the only way, something like this, the way to overcome this preoccupation concern is through pleasure, is through what I'm calling dharmic pleasure. He doesn't use that term, but dharmic pleasure. That there is a kind of pleasure you can cultivate that uh, uh, has an antidote to the preoccupation with sensual pleasure. And one way to see this is that there is another kind of pleasure, a feeling of wellness, of goodness, of, of, uh, that is a reconditioning factor. And uh, we, we're very, def- very strongly influenced by the conditions in which we live in. 
And then we say that we can be conditioned by them. There are lifelong kind of conditioning. Uh, so people who live with constant threat growing up can be conditioned to be afraid and anxious. And wherever they go, they're kind of have their eyes open looking and how to be safe because they feel that's what they've learned, taken in. There are people who have been horribly wounded, scarred emotionally by what happens to them. And that, uh, and that creates a conditioning, that creates a kind of an influence that leads a la- lasting impression and a lasting perspective in which to look out into the world, like the world is a dangerous place because people are threatening or something. And, uh, and there's all these series of uh, conditionings we have. Some people receive the conditioning that you're successful if you have a lot of pleasure. And so you should really, and you get, you get rewarded for having sensual pleasure. And so you want to have lots of pleasure because that's how you feel rewarded. You feel good and feel like everything's okay in the world. And that's been the conditioning. Now, over and over again, that's been reinforced in different kinds of ways. And, uh, and these kinds of conditionings can lead to uh, an intensity around the pursuit of sensual pleasure of all kinds. Uh, it could, I mean, certainly it can be sexual. It can be the pleasure of alcohol and drugs. It can be the pleasures of the intellect, uh, pleasures of adventures, pleasures of a daredevil who just, you know, engaged and fully absorbed in some kind of thing that has their, it brings their attention fully into the present moment and clears out everything else. It feels so alive and so connected. Some people fear, uh, you know, and doing things that are frightening it brings a kind of aliveness. They don't have any other time in their life. And so it feels so good to have that aliveness. There was a, I remember many years, I've told this story a few times, many years ago, I saw a little documentary about a, a man who had spent his early part of his adult life uh, spending a lot of time like on the weekends riding his motorcycle all over. And that's how he cleared his mind and got ready for work and enjoyed just driving his big motorcycle around. But then uh, uh, he and his wife had a baby and he couldn't spend the weekend away on his motorcycle. So he had to find a quicker way to clear his mind and be ready to start fresh and everything. So he, he took up the, the sport of uh, paragliding. And it looked as if he could kind of paraglide, kind of, you can apparently, I don't know if that's the right word, but he could put it into a, pack it into a backpack. And, uh, and then early in the morning at dawn, he would climb up in these skyscrapers that were being built in his city. So it was still kind of open and everything, but he would sneak sneak into the into the building, climb up to the top, and um, and then he would jump from the top into the street below where there's no traffic yet, just as dawn was happening. And he had a friend with a car, getaway car, waiting down below to drive off, drive to hick him off. And that's how he cleared his mind, <laughs> you know. And that's how you know he something good happened, and he felt alive and good and present. So there's all these ways in which we are pursuing some kind of feeling of feeling alive and good and that sometimes involves pursuit of pleasure or having an experience in life, good things. And, uh, and sometimes those kinds of pursuits 
don't really fill us, don't really meet some deeper need that we have. And in fact, as we almost need to kind of repeat the same pleasure in order to be distracted from some deeper wound, some deeper loneliness, some deeper uh, angst, some deeper depression, some deeper something. And, uh, and so people then repeat the same thing, whether you're yearning for more and more and more. So the Buddha said that uh, what's, uh, you know, that they said, yeah, you, that way doesn't work. But in order to kind of not have this pursuit of sensual pleasure be an obstacle, you have to experience a non-sensual pleasure, a pleasure that's not of the physical senses, and a pleasure which he used the word unwholesome, when it's not unwholesome, that uh, unskillful. And so, and then what he used as an example for this was the, a certain kind of pleasure that comes from meditation practice. That a certain kind of joy and well-being and happiness that can well up from the inside. And this idea of welling up from the inside is a, uh, is a, a very different source for a sense of well-being than the sense of uh, pleasure or even well-being that can come from getting uh, stimulated by good experiences from the outside in. So it might feel really good to have a really good meal, tasty meal, your favorite meal. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're simply taking in the pleasure of it, that's uh, uh, what you're being, then it's only of the senses. If the person who made the meal for you did it with a lot of love, and it touched something inside of you, like, wow, this feels, I can feel the generosity and the goodness of this person who's doing something. That could touch something that's not of the senses. That might touch your heart in some way. And that has a very different impact on us than the conditioning that comes from just, just the senses, just the pleasure of the food. It's not the food that we're benefiting from the most, it's rather the goodness of it. So a story I like to tell is my, you know, a lasting impression that uh, still with me. It probably was a, at the time I didn't know it was, it conditioned me. It had its lifelong influence on me. But was staying at my grandmother's house when I was maybe somewhere between seven and ten. And waking up in the morning, it's beautiful light and staying in bed with this all wooden room. It's in Norway with the Norwegian comforter and this bright Norwegian light coming in through the window and just being all cozy reading Donald Duck magazines in Norwegian. And uh, she would bring in a tray with toast, butter and cheese on it. And uh, and that, it was nice, I would stay in bed eating the toast, and, you know, with the reading the Donald Duck magazines. But uh, somehow, not un- unbeknownst to me at that time, I was taking in the goodness, the safety, the warmth, the love of that situation of my grandmother. And I still carry in me, with me that feeling, that memory of that goodness. So certainly the toast with cheese was pleasant, sensually, but it was some deeper feeling, that wellspring from inside. Something deeper was born or was awoken or was allowed that did something special, just a simple thing she did. 
and uh, and so uh, and so to awaken this wellspring, something that can a goodness, a pleasure that can arise from the inside out, and not continually looking for it in the world, is the the, the path of the Dharma. Certainly, it could have been my lifelong pursuit is to find someone who was just like my grandmother and make sure I had got the right kind of comforter or the right kind of wooden bed and make sure that they brought the toast and butter in every morning at the right time of day when the light was shining through, getting just to get everything set up and have someone who was just, just like my grandmother and so that, that somehow... But that's just... That, that, I think, in a strict way, that in Buddhism is just trying to get the world of the senses just organized around you to try to replicate something. But what is it to... But in Dharma practice, what we're doing is we're not looking at the external world for this, but we're looking to see how can we awaken something inside that becomes a reconditioning that dissipates any kind of attachment to comfort, sensual comfort, physical comfort, any kind of attachment to sensual or physical pleasure, any kind of attachments to physical or sensual stimulation of any kind at all, including intellectual stimulation. And the, so the Buddha said, you can't really overcome this addiction or preoccupation with this kind of physical pleasure, sensual pleasure, without this dharmic pleasure. And... Uh, and uh, one of the ways he talked about this dharmic pleasure, the more his language, he called it uh, pleasure not of the flesh. Uh, Nir amisa sukha. So, uh, uh, so not of the flesh, meaning nothing physical was being stimulated. And so have you had any experiences where there was enough sense of well-being, of safety, of quiet, of comfort, or something, and setting the environment was just right, that you felt something not so much nourished from the outside, but allowed something inside to settle, to open, to be at ease, to feel safe, so that there was a wellspring within that began to flow and move through you. It requires being in a different way than most people are, I think, in their ordinary life, where maybe we're just keeping ourselves busy. We have a to-do list, and we're doing this and that, and we're trying to maybe just be busy or keep ourselves entertained. Like, you know, some people have, do what's called, it's a term I only learned a few years ago, uh, binge-watching. And, uh, you know, there's some kind of TV program that just, like, there's all these series. You can watch, like, ten series in, in one day. Stay up all night. So that might be ple- physically pleasure. This is Buddha would call a kind of a pleasure of the senses. But it doesn't create the environment, the situation, the context that awakens something from the inside out. Probably not. And so, what, uh, so meditation for the Buddha was, he presented that as the means for this deeper uh, healing uh, pleasure that's possible to have. And, uh, you know, he didn't have Netflix. 
he didn't have all the things we have in the modern world that people use, you know, to try to assuage how they're feeling uncomfortable. And so the Buddha said, Buddha did not teach that you overcome pain with pain. He taught you overcome pleasure. You overcome pain with pleasure. He did not say you overcome pleasure with pain. He said you overcome pleasure with pleasure. And overcome here means overcoming our attachments, our preoccupation, our fixation. So whether things are, the fixation has to do with things that are pleasant, or the fixation has to do with things that are unpleasant, both are uh, kind of healed through feeling this dharmic well-being, this dharmic pleasure. And so the art of, uh, of discovering a way of feeling a certain kind of inner pleasure or well-being and letting that be the context in which you experience your life. So I'll give you an example for me. It's not dramatic, but maybe you can fill in in a way that's meaningful for you. It's probably something like this happens to many of you. Like sometimes I sit, I've had a busy day doing a lot of things or something or a lot of feelings, a lot of something going on. And I sit down to meditate and I discover that my breathing is not relaxed. There's kind of, I'm contracted in the chest a little bit. And if I sit and feel that, it actually feels unpleasant on the top of the inhale. But what I do is I relax a bit around it and I feel, it doesn't have to be dramatic, very subtle sense of well-being or pleasure in the wider body, the global body. Part of it's a pleasure that comes from just the pleasure or the goodness of being conscious of things, just being aware of things. It feels good for me. And then I'll, I'll, as I stay focusing on my breathing, I just contentedly feel the discomfort of my breathing without making it a problem. And, but I feel the discomfort in this wider field of pleasure, of pleasantness, of goodness that's there. So I've, I can end up being feeling very content, feeling the discomfort, because it's not the, not the whole picture. It's not, it's not, it's not the, I'm not fixated on it. Early in my meditation practice, many years ago, I would have gotten so caught up and preoccupied. Oh, I shouldn't be breathing that way. This is a problem. I'm a bad meditator. <laughs> what do I have to do to stop having this discomfort? I'm not supposed to have it. And I, got, what a t- I, I tied myself in knots around these kinds of things. And because of this kind of negativity bias, perhaps, or this idea that I'm supposed to you know, deal with these problems, I'm supposed to be just, everything's supposed to be different. And now I just, oh, look at that. I guess the cause, the conditions of the day, my breathing is a little bit, un- is uncomfortable. And it's okay. And, and I feel that discomfort in this wider feeling of pleasure. And that has healed my tendency to be preoccupied, the shoulds, the judgments, the idea that I'm wrong. Something relaxes that way. Uh, and so 
this idea of there's a dharmic pleasure, a pleasure not of the senses, not of the flesh, something that kind of is, belongs more to the a wellspring that we allow for, that we open up to, and then we allow ourselves to be conditioned by it. There's an art of allowing ourselves to be influenced by that. And perhaps in your daily life, there are moments, situations where you feel something like this. But maybe you're not, you don't linger long enough in it. You just have like, you know, you know, you have your to-do list. Okay, let's go to the next thing. And you jump in your car and you're tense driving. But the fact that you just were in the park with a friend and and going for a nice walk and feeling kind of peaceful. That's besides the point once you get in your car to go to the next important thing. But what about lingering or staying with these feelings? Some of these dharmic pleasures can, uh, we benefit the most if we allow them to take them in. We let them, oh, this is good. In spite of the fact that I feel unhappy right today, there is also this goodness here. If we get preoccupied with our unhappiness, we're going to be probably more likely influenced by the unhappiness in a negative way. But if we allow ourselves to be unhappy but feel it in a wider field of something that feels easeful or pleasant or open, then that can be an influence that heals some of the unhappiness. So what are some of the things that we can feel? Some of it is uh, a global awareness of the body that's bigger than any particular place where we feel uncomfortable or feel pain in the body. It's not always available to us, but there might be some feeling of uh, subtle vibration or subtle energy flow or subtle tingling or subtle spaciousness. One of the things that's happened to me over the years of practice, uh, I have lots of space in my body now. At least that's what it feels like to me. It looks like a very spacious, beautiful, big place in there I close my eyes. And I was so surprised when I went to, uh, some years ago, I started going once a year to a, uh, a community college nearby that has an uh, anatomy lab where they spend time with a cadaver that's all cut open. You can see the inside. And I was so surprised. There's no space in there. <laughs> it's just packed with organs and everything. I'm like, wow. I, they don't have any space. But I have lots of space. <laughs> this, this space is not real space, but it's the space that I've, you know, just somehow I, uh, experience, I feel the space. I feel spacious, very inside and around, very spacious. And that spaciousness feels nice. When I was younger, I would have, didn't think that space like that was something to focus on. Now I feel that it's kind of like you go into a big, big sacred space and, and it's a space and the high ceilings and everything that somehow makes the place feel kind of sacred or quiet or peaceful. And so to feel the spaciousness within for me, as a positive conditioning force. Sometimes it's, uh, it's uh, s- some of the things that we do 
that has a positive influence because of the goodness of doing it. Being generous, not giving, but a giving which is generous, or giving that has a feeling of love with it, or honesty, not the honesty that's a duty, but the honesty that sets something free inside. You're not hiding or contracted. It's something that decontracts us. And to feel that feel the goodness of honesty, of truthfulness, the uh, kindness, compassion, uh, that kind of kindness and compassion, again, there's not a should and not a duty, not a, like, a, you know, I'm supposed to, I'm, you know, I'm a good Buddhist, I'm supposed to be this way, I'm going to kind of buckle down to be kind. But rather to discover how to open and allow for a softness, a tenderness, where of course you want to be kind, of course that's not good. And all these things, learning how to do these things in a way, discovering your way, not someone else's way, we're doing, living, going through life, you do things, you speak things, you act in ways that feels really good for you on the inside out. Some people, uh, sometimes they, in Buddhism, they talk about actions which are beautiful. But I think the beauty is not the external grace in which you do things, but rather the feeling of beauty from the inside out as you do it. And what does it take to do things in a beautiful way? I don't think you can do them in a hurry. I think hurry interferes with any of this deeper well-being that can recondition us and heal us and show us something different. So it requires something of us. And one of the things it requires is non-hurry, to feel, to be present. One of the forms of, uh, primary forms of dharmic pleasure that the Buddha emphasized for this purpose, this reconditioning purpose, this way of overcoming preoccupation with sensual pleasure, was the kind of uh, well-being that arises when we get uh, our attention becomes unified, organized in a unified way, to be fully engaged, absorbed in one thing. I say that very carefully in all these all those words, because I could have said when we just get concentrated on one thing. But to say concentrated, some people then get fixated. This tight attention, they bear down. They narrow down to really stay and be present. And that is not the unified, composed attention with which we get organized around being absorbed in one thing. And so some of, some of you maybe have felt a wonderful feeling of maybe well-being, being absorbed in reading a good novel. Just, it just feels so good just to be left, you know, the world around you falls away, you get pulled into the novel. Some of you might have a craft you do, where you're, you could say, yeah, I'm absorbed in the craft, but you're not fixating on any one part of the craft. It's the whole phenomena that feels good. And you, may, you might be idly thinking about things that, 
but uh, your, your mind hasn't stopped thinking. But everything is organized around the craft, or playing a musical instrument, or doing art, or going for a walk sometimes in a natural setting. So in meditation, that's the kind of absorption that is possible that uh, the Buddha was emphasizing that gives birth to a deeper sense of uh, uh, wellspringing of well-being, of joy, of happiness, of delight, and that we're allowed to feel pleasure, dharmic pleasure. We're allowed to feel good. In fact, to, to be fixated on what's uncomfortable, what's difficult, emotionally, physically, in the world, the fixation is a bad influence on us. The fixation is stressful. We don't have to ignore the difficulties we have, but we can hold them in a different context than one that's held by being fixated on it. And so using meditation to begin relaxing the fixations, softening the way we get preoccupied by things, opening up, developing a soft, receptive, floating awareness. An awareness, because it's not fixated, can start becoming aware of the peripheral context of of our situation. And by the way, peripheral context, what I mean is uh, if we're involved with our breathing, for example, that's the primary center of our attention, meditating, we're not only taking in the breathing, hang on for dear life, but we're also, the peripheral attention takes in the goodness, the subtle, very subtle, perhaps pleasure, well-being of the situation we're in, maybe physically, to feel where where it does feel good. And there's often more more goodness, more pleasure than most people take advantage of. And here's a, a here's an example that I find kind of fascinating. <clears throat> if I feel tense in my body, it feels uncomfortable, I can relax the tension. And then notice that I'm tense somewhere else and you try to deal with that, or something else is a problem. But what happened was that I I ignored the fact that as I released attention, there was a feeling of subtle pleasure, relief in my shoulders as I relaxed. So what should I focus on? The, The tension, the painful tension that I'm glad went away, or the pleasure that replaced it. It's the same relaxation happens, but am I keep focusing on what's negative, or can I focus on the positive side of it? So there's many situations where I, I learn to relax, for example, and feel the goodness of the relaxation that I wouldn't have done early in my life because I'm, I'm just going barreling ahead with one preoccupation concern after the other. Check that off, relax the shoulders. What's next to do? <laughs> what's, what's the next thing to worry about? 
But again, this idea of not hurrying and taking the time. And chances are there's more non-sensual pleasure, dharmic pleasure, that's available in any given time than you, than you allow, than you recognize. I've sat at meetings and been impatient, and the impatient didn't go away, but by somehow settling into my body, I could feel there was wider in my body. There was, in fact, a sense of feeling a little bit alive, nicely vital, relaxing, that created a different context for feeling the impatience. And uh, earlier in my life, I would have just kind of been caught by the impatience. Now I know better. Now I think, oh, I'm impatient. What else is going on here? And can I feel that larger context of just the pleasure of just being alive right now? And now breathe with the impatience. Now be with it. So I'm not fixated on it. It's being held in a wider context. So I call this the peripheral attention. And, uh, and to float the attention between the central focus and the peripheral, to be focused on the, on the central focus of what needs, to be t- needs attention, but to hold that with the peripheral attention of what feels good, what feels pleasant, that supports this ability to get absorbed, composed, gathered around, unified about something. And then, lo and behold, this, uh, this kind of staying very, very still and quiet and absorbed in something, uh, like the breathing or other things, can start producing this deeper wellsprings. And I keep using the word wellsprings because the Buddha, in talking about this kind of absorption, uses the metaphor, analogy, of an underground spring, underwater spring in a lake a wellspring of, of, of water that flows into the lake from below. And uh, he, I think he uses that metaphor uh, purposefully because that's how it can feel inside of us. That this wellspring with us flows from someplace within and flows outward and through the body. This uh, vibration, this energy, this tingling, this warmth, this glow, whatever it might, I don't know how the right term for you is, and so to allow ourselves, give ourselves time to feel, make room for some other way of feeling. They take the time and room to feel dharmic pleasure. And in this way, pleasure overcomes attachment to pleasure. Isn't that convenient? And the Buddha was very specific about in the context of ancient India that uh, we don't use pain to overcome pleasure. We don't use pain to overcome pain. But for him, you use, we use pleasure to overcome the preoccupation both with pain and pleasure. And so, how might this work for you? I suspect that uh, probably for many of you, I probably didn't speak about this very well in a way that was specific enough for you, but I hope what it did was at least turn the mirror back to yourself to see, you know, what is there some way that you know in your terms, in your experience, what I'm talking about, what I've been talking about. Something that would be useful for you 
to take more time with and make room for and not be in a hurry for and, and not be tricked by the mind's preoccupations and the mind's to-do list and the mind's previous conditioning that maybe gets you kind of constantly on the treadmill of doing things which are actually continue being a poor influence on you. But being in the shifting gears to allow a healthy, appropriate, new influence, new conditioning that allows you then to take in and benefit from the deeper and deeper way that mindfulness can make gather you together to be really present for your experience. So just there's more and more nurturing, there's more and more healing, there's more and more goodness and pleasure in the practice. So uh, I hope this is uh, something that you can identify in yourself and find useful and Thank you for being here today. And we have a couple of minutes. Would anyone like to ask any questions about this or clarifications or or anything else? Here behind you, Bill. And I'll try, for those of you online, I'll try to look at the chat and see if you have a question. But this question may be somewhat unclear even to myself. What are the gray areas between dharmic pleasure and sensual pleasure where you can't tell the difference? Which one are you now engaged in? Yeah, so where are the, uh, the, is the gray area where we can't tell the difference between dharmic pleasure and sensual pleasure? Uh, sometimes they come together. That's part of the reason why it's not so clear. And so it takes some time to be able to allow for both to be there, not assume that it can be, should only be one or the other. There's nothing inherently wrong with sensual pleasure. And so, we, uh, so in Buddhism, we're not dismissing sensual pleasure offhand. It's the attachment to it. But uh, so, and as we feel this, uh, so, so dismissing it or feeling that sensual pleasure is wrong doesn't allow us to see how they operate, they can operate together, they can both be there. Thank you very much. Blessing. Gil, I remember a quote that I think is from the verses of the Elder Nuns. I'm not sure. That part of your talk reminded me of, I take delight and attention to all suffering states. I take delight in attention to all suffering states. That's how I remember it. Well, that's a great one. Yeah, that's a good, good fantastic. So, uh, I think it's a, it's a, uh, I think it's a common assumption by people that if you're suffering, that's suffering by itself. That's all the all that's going on because of this a bit negativity bias, because of the preoccupation with it, because of the ways which our thinking get so pulled into that world that we're just thinking about it all the time. But to learn to not be caught in thoughts, to learn how to open up attention into a wider field, uh, and just the idea of discovering the preciousness of being conscious, of being mindful, being aware, and how awareness of something can feel 
pleasant, enjoyable, or just a rightness to it. There's freedom in, in the awareness of it. So, so it's possible to be aware of suffering states and actually feel joy. Like when I talked about feeling my discomfort with my breathing sometimes, when I kind of turn towards it with a spacious mind and body and fluent, um, just my ability to do that, I sometimes get a little smile. Oh, look at that. <laughs> it's so good to be mindful. <laughs> and whereas in the past, I wouldn't have noticed that. So, so I, I suspect it's something like that. So say, say it again. I take delight and attention toward all suffering states. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot better than the alternative. <laughs> Anything else? Uh, are, is someone asked here online, are you speaking about leaning into the pain? Leaning into the pain. Well, you know, that might be fun. That might, if, if, with the right kind of mindfulness and attention, that could be fun. <laughs> but not, uh, but, uh, so I wouldn't rule it out, but I, I'm not really encouraging people to lean into the pain. But if you have pain to begin with, you want to be wise about it, and you want to have lots of options and be able to find your way with it. And, uh, and one of the ways to find your way with it is to hold the pain uh, in, in a wider field of pleasure or well-being or freedom of attention or something. Just hold it in awareness without being caught by it. And one of the things that does is it allows us to see the pain more clearly so we can be wiser about what to do with it. And there's lots of options. So it might be that we should take an aspirin. <laughs> it might be that we should ignore it. And it might be that we should, you know, really bring careful attention to really feel it closely and intimately. There's so many choices, you know. But whatever, but you first have to stop long enough to check it out. So anyway, that's my response to that question. So, okay. So, maybe that's enough. You know, I kind of feel like I just gave you a hot potato. <laughs> and now you have it to practice. <laughs> and uh, hopefully you get dharmically warmed by it in a nice way. Thank you very much.